0: Amen. Well, I wonder if we could uh, turn this evening to the Gospel of uh, John and to the 20th chapter, and we'll read some verses out of the 20th uh, chapter of the Gospel of of John, and then uh, we'll read a few verses from the last chapter of the Bible as well, the Revelation chapter 22, and then from verse 17 of that. But, Verse 1 uh, to 5 of John uh, chapter 20. John chapter 20 and beginning at verse 1. The first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene early, when it was yet dark, unto the sepulcher, and seeth the stone taken away from the sepulcher. Then she runneth and cometh to Simon Peter, And to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and saith unto them, they have taken away the Lord out of the sepulchre and we know not where they have laid him. Peter therefore went forth and that other disciple and came to the sepulchre. So they ran both together and the other disciple did outrun Peter and came first to the sepulchre and stooping down and looking in, saw the linen clothes lying, yet went he not in. And then going down to verse 19, uh, then to the end of the chapter, verse 19, then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews. Actually, that says, if you look in the um, original, the Greek there, the same day at evening being the first day Sabbath. So it's a first day Sabbath. When the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. And when he had so said, he showed unto them his hands and his side. Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. Then said Jesus to them again, Peace be unto you. As my Father has sent me, even so send I you. And when he had said this, He breathed on them and saith unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. Whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted unto them. And whosoever sins ye retain, they are retained. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said unto him, We have seen the Lord. And he said unto them, Except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days again, now eight days is the first day of the week, his disciples were within, and Thomas with them. Then came Jesus, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace be unto you. Then saith he to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger. Behold my hands, and reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into my side, and be not faithless, but believing. And Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. Jesus saith unto him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen, and yet have believed. And we'll end our reading there, and just turn over to the last few verses of Revelation chapter 22, beginning at verse 17. Revelation 22 and verse 17. And the Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let him that heareth say, Come, and let him that is athirst come, and whosoever will let him take of the water of life freely. For I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book, if any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. And if any man shall take away from the words the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. He which testifieth these things saith, Surely I come quickly. Amen. Even so come, Lord Jesus, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, be with you all. Amen. Now, we're going to look tonight at the Seventh day Adventist. Now, we're going to uh, take a look at some of the uh, cults of uh, this day and generation. You're not going to read that. Uh, very handy, but I'll tell you what it says. Um, that there is Dr. Walter Martin. And what we want to think about today, tonight, is the Seventh Day Adventist cult. Now, there is a great amount of debate amongst even uh, evangelicals as to whether you should count uh, the Seventh Day Adventists as a cult. And we're starting with this because the background to Seventh Day Adventism is really much the same background that the as the Jehovah Witnesses, they come out of the same kind of, uh, of uh, a court, as it were. They come out of the same origin, and there are those that say Dr. Walter Martin here. He was a, a great writer on cults, and when he examined the uh, Jehovah or the uh, Seventh Day Adventists, he said, "Well, they are heterodox." They have some very funny beliefs, but they are not a cult. And we will see that the Seventh-day Adventists set out their main doctrines, and when you look at them, uh, most of them, as far as you would be concerned, are orthodox and straight up and down. And for that reason, I would say that there are those within the Seventh-day Adventist church who are saved uh, there, you get differences among them and, and some are more evangelical than others but what i want to do tonight is to look at their beliefs and we want to think about their beliefs because um, if you go by some of the core doctrines of seventh day adventism it is very far from the gospel a number of years ago there was A controversy, Uh, there was the cleft in Portadown. Some of you may remember the cleft. It was an evangelical meeting of young people in Portadown, the Craigavon Civic Center. And they took meetings in Bambridge uh, Seventh-day Adventist Church. And that created a big controversy at the time. Uh, There were those that were against what had taken place. And at that time there were those like this man, Dr. Desmond Ford, and he was questioning some of the core beliefs of Seventh-day Advent. He was a Seventh-day Adventist. He was a Seventh-day Adventist theologian, and he was questioning some of the writings of a woman, uh, Mary, uh, or I was going to say Mary Baker, Ellen uh, White. Uh, they they, he was questioning some of these core beliefs Uh, And it seemed as if there was going to be a move away from uh, these uh, aberrant beliefs that were in Seventh-day Adventism. But the thing was that uh, Dr. Desmond Ford was driven out of Seventh-day Adventism in 1980. The church leaders disciplined the Australian theologian here and they removed him from the ministry and drove him out Of the Seventh-day Adventist Church and there was a split at that time so it seemed to be that the leadership of Seventh-day Adventism rather than moving away from the uh, the doctrines the uh, 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 apparent doctrines that there were uh, really doubled down on those doctrines so uh, in many ways we can uh, really say that yes maybe this is a a cult and The origins of the movement go back to a man called William Miller. Now, William Miller was one of 16 children. He was born on February the 15th, 1782 in Pittsville, Massachusetts. His father was a soldier in the Revolutionary War. And William was, uh, was just a child of four years of age um, when they moved to the New York region, uh, his father was a Baptist, but William, in that day, it was the day of um, of rationalism and deism. Now deism is the belief that God is way up there, and he never pays any attention to us. Uh, God has set the uh, the wheels in motion in the world. And he just sits up there and watches everything going on, but never takes any part in the world. And this became something that was very much held to amongst the intellectual belief, the the elite of that day. And Walter Martin took on these beliefs. He left his Baptist religion and he became a deist and really something of a rationalist and uh, almost, you would say, uh, an atheist, he wasn't an atheist, he was a deist, but um, many of those beliefs were what he espoused. But then in 1812, he went to fight in the uh, 1812 war, the the, uh, uh, the war between the United States and Britain, and he joined a militia, and he fought in the Battle of uh, Plattsburgh, and there he saw the horrors of war and all that was taking place. Uh, he said, The, the fort uh, I was in was exposed to every shot, bombs, rockets, and shrapnel shells fell as thick as hailstones. And one of the shots exploded at his feet. And he, it wounded him and uh, three men as well, uh, killing another. And this really shook Miller. And he thought to himself, he said, my deism is going, not going to stand if I uh, leave this life. Uh, it's not going to be uh, a, a, a belief that's going to stand by me in times of trouble. And it seemed to him as if uh, a supreme being had watched over him and guarded him and helped him. And this really shook his deism. So after the war, he, um, he and his family went back to Lowhampton. To the, this was the house that he lived in in New York, and he purchased a farm there. And in Lowhampton, he began to get involved in the Baptist church to rekindle, as it were, his Baptist faith. And at first, he thought he could d- d- combine his old deism with uh, Christianity and he thought that he could have the two things mixed together, and there was a little bit of ambiguity. But then his uh, attendance at the Baptist church became uh, more regular, and uh, eventually he was actually asked to speak. And he said, "I, I realized the loveliness of the Savior. One day when he was speaking, he said, I immediately felt how lovely such a being must be, and imagined that I could cast myself in the arms of and trust in the mercy of such a one. And really that was something of a conversion experience. Well, that's the way he described it. I don't know whether you uh, say I will take it as a conversion experience. But it did change him. And he began, well, he he had to face his old deist friends, his old sort of atheistic Hey, friends, if we think of it like that. And he had to explain to them why he had turned away from his old deism and turned back to the Bible. And he said to them, well, he said, I will uh, study the Bible. I'll examine the Bible closely. And he said, if I can't harmonize any of the apparent contradictions to my own satisfaction, he said, I will be a deist, a deist a still. So he began to study the Bible. And this is where all of these things come in because he became uh, very interested, obsessed, really, I suppose, with uh, the prophecies of the Bible and particularly the prophecies of Daniel chapter 8, verse 14. And he began to think, well, I can use this to calculate when the Lord Jesus Christ is coming back again. Now, you know and I know that the Bible tells us that we don't know the day or the hour. We don't know when our Savior is coming back. And you can say that almost as soon as somebody sets a date on it, that's not going to be when the Lord Jesus Christ was, uh, is coming back. In an hour, the Bible says, when ye think not, The Son of Man cometh. And yes, there are prophecies. And yes, there are indications of what the day will be like when our Saviour is coming again. But it is a fool's errand uh, to try and calculate it down to the day. But this is what this man thought he would do. And he began to say, well, there's 2,300 days. uh, And he took those as years, the year-day thing. And he calculated that the Lord Jesus then would come back in 1843. He said, I was brought to the solemn conclusion that in about 25 years from the time 1818, all the affairs of this present state would be wound up. And uh, for those that have just come in, we're thinking about Seventh-day Adventism here, and we're talking about William Miller, William Miller is really at the uh, start of uh, Jehovah's Witnesses as well as Seventh-day Adventism. And we are saying that he became obsessed with uh, prophecy and he came to the point where he predicted that the Lord Jesus Christ was coming back in 1843. So in 1831, um, Miller was asked to preach at a Baptist church And he preached on the second advent and he said that in March 1843 uh, or March 1844 based on interpretation of Daniel 8 and 14 that the Lord Jesus Christ would come back. Now there were Presbyterians, Baptists, Methodists, uh, Christian Connection churches. This took off like wildfire at this time, this prediction that the Lord Jesus Christ was coming back. And that lies at the origin of so many of the cults. Uh, just this prediction that the Lord Jesus Christ was coming back and this date. So they started waiting, waiting for the date. In the summer of 1844, uh, they started waiting for the date, uh, March 1844, and it didn't happen. It didn't happen. The Lord didn't come back in March 1844. And as far as I understand, at that point, Miller confessed his error and left the movement. Now, his, the followers of him are still called Millerites. But as far as, far as I uh, think, it was at that point that Miller confessed that he was wrong and left the, the movement, but there were others that, though they were disappointed, they thought, "Well, uh, maybe we've got it slightly wrong." And so there was a, a new date set. A man by the name of Samuel Snow, one of Miller's followers, uh, that once again he would set a date, October the twenty-second, eighteen forty-four, and they li- they uh, they linked the cleansing of the sanctuary in Daniel 8 and 14 to the Jewish Day of Atonement. So they thought October 1844. Now by that time there were over a hundred thousand people anticipating what uh, Miller had called the Blessed Hope and what Snow was calling the Blessed Hope. And so it came to Uh, the 22nd of October, 1844. Now, Tuesday, the 22nd of October, 1844, was a very auspicious date in the uh, lives of these people. We're told that many of them gave up their jobs. Uh, They left their work. Um, There was a, a shop in New York or um, either New York or Philadelphia, it was, uh, they had a notice. uh, They were saying that the Lord Jesus Christ is coming back, and it's uh, Philadelphia. and, And the notice said, this shop is closed in honor of the King of Kings, who will appear about the 22nd of October. Get ready, friends, to crown him Lord of all. Some we are told, and um, others say this really didn't happen, but the story goes that some of them went up onto the tops of mountains in white robes, waiting for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they waited to the end of the day, and the Lord Jesus Christ didn't appear. And this was called the Great Disappointment. One man who later became very prominent, man called Hiram Edson wrote, he said, Our fondest hopes and expectations were blasted, and such a spirit of weeping came over us as I never experienced before. We wept and wept till the day dawn. Now, I want you to remember that. This was an emotional experience. This was... Uh, um, uh, an experience that re- went right to the depth of these people. They were sorely disappointed. And it says about Hiram Edson that he wept and wept till the day dawned. That was his own words. And there maybe I don't know uh, why I'm right in describing a little bit of hysteria. This is Hiram Edson here. And the disappointment of the 22nd of to- October. Of course, then many of the followers left the movement. They, said, well, this, they were disillusioned. The, well, this is wrong. Uh, most uh, ceased to believe in the imminent return of the Lord. Some believed that the date was wrong, but there were others, and these became the Seventh-day Adventists, that believed that the date was right, but the event that they were expecting was wrong. And having been so disappointed that they wept unremittingly in deep emotion, Hiram Edson was able to come up with an explanation as to what had happened on the 22nd of October. He was out one day, this is his farm, and he was out one of the days following the the morning of October the 23rd actually. Um, He had wept all night, he said, Obviously hadn't been to bed all night. And he was out in the grain field. And lo and behold, he gets a vision. Now in the vision, he sees the Lord Jesus. And he's not coming to earth. But what he sees is that the Lord Jesus, as the high priest, is coming to into the most holy of the sanctuary. So instead of coming to earth, what happened on the 22nd of October is that the Lord Jesus moved into the holiest of all of the sanctuary of heaven. And there he was going to enter into a new ministry. Now, of course, we, we don't read anything of that in the Bible. Or, nor does the Bible give any indication of that. Nor has the church in any way believed that in any way before uh, Hiram Edson got his vision after weeping all night and after obviously not having slept all night. So there were many people who were willing to listen to his vision and to take what his vision said. And a friend Owen Crozier, this is him here, and Edson along with uh, their friend and neighbor, Franklin B. Han, spent several uh, weeks then and months poring over the Bible, studying it, uh, and they came up with a publication in March 1845, The Day Dawn. And Crozier was a school teacher, so he was able to write the article, and they sold their best silverware to get the money to fund the publication, and Han had the uh, material published about this uh, that they had discovered, something called the investigative judgment. Now, this is one of the things that the um, Seventh-day Adventists believe, that you get nowhere else, and you don't get it in the Bible, and you get nowhere else, and it had never been uh, uh, proposed or anybody had thought about it, in any way but they believe in this investigative judgment now what's the investigative judgment well they say that on october the 22nd 1844 when the lord jesus didn't come to earth but rather moved from the holy place in the heavenly tabernacle or temple into the holiest of all he went in there as high priest And uh, he is now in a new phase of ministry. And what he is doing is that he's eradicating all sin and he is judging uh, the dead who are asleep. We'll come to that in a wee minute. They don't believe that when a person uh, in Christ dies, they go to heaven. They believe that just all go into the grave soul sleep they're like the Jehovah's witnesses in that as well but they uh say that the lord jesus is judging those that are dead or uh, in this soul sleep to see which of them will be worthy to take part in the resurrection of christ and that they will be they will have eternal life now can you see something wrong with that belief? Well, what does it mean? It means that the Lord Jesus Christ hasn't finished his work. It means that when he cried on the cross, it is finished, it wasn't finished. It, they are saying that in this investigative judgment, he's still eradicating sin. And he is still determining his people. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 12 says, but this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sin forever, sat down at the right hand of God. He sat down. He doesn't move from uh, one place to the other. He's not standing as the high priest in the investigative judgment, but he there was no chair in the temple there was no chair for the priests in the tabernacle why because they did not sit down but the lord jesus christ sat down because his work is finished and isn't it a wonderful thing that we have a savior who has done all that needed to be done we're glad today that redemption's price has been complete that there is no more need to be done victory has been won there at the cross of Calvary, and the work of God is complete. So there's something dramatically wrong with the investigative judgment. Something else that they say that happens in the investigative judgment is they take the picture of the scapegoat. Now you remember the scapegoat in the Old Testament And the ceremony of the scapegoat was that there were two goats that were taken. One was slain, and the blood was shed. And then the blood of the uh, slain goat was placed on the head of the other goat, and it was led away out into the wilderness, never to be seen anymore. And of course, it's a great illustration of how the Lord Jesus Christ bore our sins and then carries them away as far as the east is from the the west. What do seven-day Adventists believe? They believe that uh, Satan is the scapegoat, that it is Satan that bears the sins of people away. Uh, They call this the final blotting out of sin, uh, when Satan will have all the sins of uh, his people placed on him. And we read in First Peter chapter two, verse 24, that Christ bore our sins, who, his own self, bare our sins in his own body on the tree. So there is great problems with this heterodox doctrine, this very unusual doctrine, this uh, apparent doctrine, really in many ways, um, and we think about the investigative judgment. The doctor of the investigative judgment um, gives works an undue place in salvation because the Lord Jesus examined people now and there's that sense of works in it. Ellen White, we'll come to Ellen White in a minute, uh, said a Christian might be disqualified from salvation by failing to repent of every single sin. Um, that, that would contradict the Reformation understanding of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone. By grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. So that's one major thing that we find that is wrong. And the other thing that we need to remember is that it's 170 years now, since the doctrine of the investigated gate of judgment has been proclaimed the thought of those that had proclaimed it was that it would only be a short time that the lord jesus had had uh, instead of they had mistaken that he was coming to earth but that he was going into the second phase of his ministry the thought was that this was only going to be a very short period of time before the lord jesus christ would come again. But the ever-increasing span of time since 1844 uh, casts extra doubt on the validity of the belief in the investigative judgment. Something else that we need to bear in mind when we think about um, Seventh-day Adventism, and that is the role of Ellen White, now we said that uh, Hiram uh, uh, Hudson and the uh, the other figures there—Joseph Bates, James White, and so on—were um, instrumental in bringing in these new doctrines. But Ellen White, in many ways, is really sort of the founder. Of the Seventh Day Adventist Church, she's a co-founder. Her name's Ellen Gould White. She was Harmon when she was before she was married, and she becomes a key figure in the development. In 1835, she established the Seventh Day Adventist headquarters in Battle Creek, in Michigan. Uh, she named the group in 1860, and she really was the driving force behind what is Seventh-day Adventism today. And as is the case with many cult leaders, she was prone to visions and to dreams. And she claimed to receive these visions and dreams from God. And she uh, encouraged nearly every aspect of Seventh-day Adventism, the peculiar things of Seventh-day Adventism, were all encouraged by visions of Mrs. White, and her visions were set down in writings. Now, the problem that we have with Ellen White's writings, uh, Ellen White's writings in Seventh-day Adventism is that for some of them, now, there's, they have, the, the different ones of them will look at her writings in different ways. But for some of them, It's like inspired scripture. There are maybe three different ways that people will look at her writing. Some believe that she was a prophet in every sense of the way that Isaiah and Jeremiah were prophets. And that her word is the word, the very word of God. Others say, well, her books were inspired but nothing else. Uh, or sayings and things like that. Her books, it's like the infallible Pope when he sits on uh, the chair, uh, the bishop's chair, he speaks inspired, but in other places he doesn't. Well, it's a bit like that when she wrote, she wrote inspired scriptures. Others uh, say that some of her writings are inspired, but they don't identify which. Many years ago, uh, the Reverend Ian Foster entered into some correspondence with the communications secretary of the Banbridge Seventh-day Adventist Church, and he, said, he, he wrote back, we freely admit that we regard her writings as being divinely inspired. So there are at least some of them that regard her writings on the same level as the Bible. Well, what did Ellen White say herself? You'll never read that. I'll have to make the writing bigger the next time. But here's what she said. I wrote many pages to be read at your camp meeting week and trembling. I arose at three o'clock in the morning to write you. God was speaking through clay. You might say that this communication was only a letter. yes. It was a letter, but prompted by the Spirit of God to bring before your minds things that had been shown me. In these letters which I write, in the testimonies I bear, I am presenting to you that which the Lord presented to me. I do not write one article in the paper expressing merely my own ideas. They are what God has opened before me in vision. The precise the precious rays of light shining from the throne, so that's what she said about her own writings. she said they're not just my writings, they are inspired that's what she's saying there that the Lord has given to them, and that they're precious rays from the throne. well, of course we have a problem with that um we read in Deuteronomy chapter 18 and verse 22, how we judge a prophet. And it says, When a prophet speaketh in the name of the Lord, if the thing follow not, nor come to pass, then is the thing which the Lord hath not, then is it, that is the thing that the Lord hath not spoken. But the prophet hath spoken it presumptuously, thou shalt not be afraid of him. Now, In her writings, Mrs. White made the following prophecies. She predicted, one, that Britain would declare war on the North during the American Civil War. That didn't happen. She prophesied that sins would be placed on Satan. Well, that's alien to the Bible. She prophesied that the Lord Jesus Christ was a created being. Well, that completely contradicts this inspired word of God. And you can't have an inspired word contradicting one another. So I think that by the uh, the uh, way that God has set out to judge a prophecy, there's a failure there. Isaiah 8 and 20 says to the Lord, to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no lighten them. Matthew 15, verse 3, the Lord said, says, but he answered and said unto them, why do ye also transgress the commandment of God by your tradition? We think of what we read earlier on there in Revelation 22, the warning that is given not to add or to take away from the precious word of God. And that, of course, is a very serious thing, and we need to see what it is our time's going here. The other, there are some other things that causes great concern. They believe in soul sleep. Well, That's what we mentioned there, how that the body doesn't immediately go to be with the Lord, but it just lies in the grave waiting for the resurrection. But then, what did Paul then mean? For I am in a strait betwixt two having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Or when he wrote in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 6 to 8, therefore we are always confident knowing that whilst we're at home in the body, we're absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Makes no sense of that if you believe in soul sleep. Just to mention the Seventh-day Adventist Sabbath, they, they're called Seventh-day Adventists because they believe in the Seventh-day Sabbath. Indeed, they say that Sunday Sabbath, or sun, keeping Sunday of the Lord's Day, is the mark of the beast. So they say about all Christians who worship on Sunday that that is the mark of the beast which is a very serious thing to allege uh, they say well the uh, sunday was made up you, you know what you get in the da vinci code the whole thing about sunday having been imposed by the pope um away back in one of the councils they come up with all of this kind of thing but i want you to see There is often alleged that the new testament nowhere makes mention of sunday as the Sabbath. However, we have just read one of them. In all of those portions, you turn over to Matthew chapter 28 and verse 1. We, we read one of them anyway. Here's another one Matthew chapter 28 and verse 1. It says, In the end of the Sabbath, that's the Saturday Sabbath, as it began toward, to dawn toward the first day of the week now in many ways sabbaths have been translated out of our bibles but the word there for the week is sabbath so once again it's the first day sabbath now it's the same in mark chapter 6 verses 1 and 2 luke 24 verse 1 john 20 verse 1 that we read acts 20 verse 7 1 Corinthians 16, verse 2, all speak about the first day Sabbath. Indeed, the last passage commands the observance of the first day Sabbath. And in the New Testament, the Sabbath was a new Sabbath was created in the Gospels for the first time in history, the third day of Passover, uh, sometimes referred to as the feast or the first fruits or the first becomes a Sabbath in Mark, Matthew 28, verse 1, Mark 16, 2, Luke 24, 1, John 20, verse 1. And that's something to remember for those that say that the Sabbath has passed away. There is a new New Testament Sabbath. So we can see that the Sabbath is being kept. And we look at the biblical d- data. And we can see how that the uh, disciples met together on the first day of the week, that they led by them in store on the first day of the week. John, in the book of Revelation, he says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And what is the Lord's day? Well, it's the uh, the, uh, first day. uh, We think of how the Lord is called the Lord of the Sabbath. So, the Lord's day is the Lord's Sabbath day. So, we can see very uh, a, a, a great amount of evidence in the New Testament for a new Sabbath, for a first day Sabbath. Even in the Old Testament, there is indications of it because we read about eighth day Sabbaths. And the eighth day, of course, is the first day of the week and we have some kind of uh, uh, indication or uh, some kind of a picturing forward of the fact that there is a first day Sabbath. So we deal with that one. Then we think of the um, loss of salvation, one of the things that Mary Baker, or not Mary, um Ellen White, Mary Baker Eddy is another one of the cults, but Ellen White said, um, She said, Now while our great high priest is making atonement for us, we should seek to become perfect in Christ. And she taught people never to say, I am saved, which is why a great many of Seventh day Adventists have no assurance. But the, perhaps the most awful thing is what they say about the Lord Jesus Christ. They say that the Lord Jesus Christ acquired a sinful nature. Christ had a sinless human nature. Christ took our sin punishment. He took the guilt of our sins, but he didn't take our, he didn't take, uh, our sin nature. And Mrs. White said Christ took upon him his sinless nature, uh, took upon his sinless nature, our sinful nature. Christ took our nature and its deteriorating condition. Now, we think of that about our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. My, what an awful thing when we think of sort of denigrating the name of our blessed Saviour, and that is something that is serious. So is the Seventh-day Adventist uh, church a cult? Well, we think of their 28 fundamental beliefs. And we recognize that many of those things we would regard as orthodox. But there is a great fault there. These things, denigrating of Christ, saying that they're, is this investigative judgment that sins are, our sins eventually are laid on Satan, that Satan is the carrier away of our sins. And when we look at those things, and maybe sometimes people will think, well, these are small things, but it is the small things that make the difference. It's the little bit of poison that enters in that poisons the whole. And so we think of this, cult or this uh, church and we pray that God in his mercy will step in and turn many to righteousness in this day and turn many to the Savior and turn away from these visions and these things that come in and divert people away from our Savior the Lord Jesus Christ. May God bless his word and write it upon our hearts for his name's sake. Well, let's just bow in a word of prayer. Time has gone. I thought I was going to be shorter tonight rather than longer, but uh, forgive me for that. But I hope that it's been helpful sometimes in just looking at these things, we begin to work out our own beliefs and what we believe is right and wrong, and that's a very useful thing. But let's just unite together, please, in a word of prayer. Our loving God and our gracious Father, we come to Thee. And we think, Lord, of uh, so many who uh, get led astray by the notions of uh, men or even dreams and visions that uh, people have in the midst of all of uh, maybe uh, being upset and all of these things. We pray, gracious God, that thou wast have mercy. Help us never to be led astray. And, Lord, we pray that we might keep Faithful to the blood and to the book. Help us, Lord, ever to be faithful to what thou hast to say in thy precious word. And we think, Lord, of so many in this day and generation. Maybe they are people who are sincere in what they believe, and yet, Lord, they've been taken up with the false doctrines of this day and generation. And we pray, Lord, that men and women might stick to the book. Oh, God, no matter what, Uh, whether they're religious or not, Lord, that there might be a turning back to the book, to the precious word of God in this day. Remember us for good and bless the going forth of thy word, even in the incoming days, and draw many to Christ. For it's in Jesus' precious name that we'd ask these things. Amen.